Hi guys, it's me, Ty Pool, and I'm back, and I have way more questions. Things like, what are animals saying to each other? Why is space so dark? What's the science behind bullying? This season, I'm willing to go where no 7th grader has ever gone before to find you the answers. Ty asks why. Rest your eyes and prepare your ears for all new episodes of Ty Asks Why. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to the best of white coat black art in the summer. This program first aired in May. Bullying has become a hot topic in healthcare. A few years back, we did a show about nurse bullying, defined as a form of violence, psychological aggression, and intimidation perpetrated by someone in a position of power. Still, you rarely hear doctors complain about being bullied, even though recent Canadian surveys say 60% of medical students and 75% of residents have been harassed, intimidated, or personally mistreated by someone in authority. Doctor bullying happens more often to women and to visible minorities, and it hurts patients too. The U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality says bullying contributes to miscommunication between health professionals and to medical errors. So why don't doctors speak up? Maybe they're afraid they won't be believed, or because bullying has been tolerated by a medical culture that looks the other way. Our show this week is about an extraordinary doctor who broke the mold. Hi, my name's Gabrielle Horn. I'm a cardiologist at the QE2 Health Sciences Centre in Halifax and Dalhousie University. In 2016, Dr. Gabriel Horn won a landmark $1.4 million lawsuit against the Nova Scotia Health Authority. The award was for administrative bad faith by a health authority for loss of reputation for a physician. On appeal, the award was reduced to $800,000. The doctor who testified on behalf of Gabriel Horn said the situation boiled down to, quote, a classic case of workplace bullying, end quote. For Dr. Horn, that win in the courts was the culmination of a decade-long and nearly bankrupting battle to salvage her reputation as a cardiologist and researcher. A battle that began sometime after 2002 when the up-and-coming young cardiologist at the Halifax Infirmary scored a high-profile research grant to study patients with heart failure. She spoke with me in our Halifax studio, where she talked about those heady early days. The job I was hired into was my dream job. I was hired to spend about half my time taking care of patients with heart problems um, in a university hospital um, and spend the rest of my time doing research in an area I was trained to do research in and very passionate about. So you set up a research team, you successfully applied for grants, you got your projects off the ground. What was the first sign of trouble for you? My first inkling there was a problem was when I was asked to give somebody else a role in basically overseeing my research. And that individual um, was not trained to do that kind of research and to my knowledge had never held a research grant Um, but he was the director of the clinic 
where our patients came from. And I tried to explain that that didn't make any sense. And my first inkling of a problem was when nobody was listening. One of the issues was that I was an attending physician and an assistant professor, and I was the principal investigator of these grants. I had to be in charge of the research program. I think that the division head at the time, the head of cardiology, and this individual and and a small group of other individuals didn't seem to understand that. Uh, And in fact, when he didn't get his way over this, um, he began accusing me of having done things that harmed patients that made that were ridiculous they made no sense they just didn't happen one day i got called into my division head's office and told that he had done an investigation of all my activities from the time i've started and that he would be mandating certain things that i had to do and if i didn't do those things my hospital privileges would not be renewed To an outsider, not renewing a doctor's hospital privileges sounds like a trivial administrative problem, but it's not. It means that any work you do inside a hospital comes to a complete stop and more, says Horn. To not renew somebody's hospital privileges is something that gets reported to the college, which oversees and regulates doctors in our province. It gets reported to every other college in Canada. Um, It means you're a terrible problem as a doctor and that you can't be trusted to take care of patients. It's a a very extreme action. Um, I was in total, utter shock. And there'd been no evidence that there was any risk to patients in anything you did. If anything, you were an exemplary physician. There was never any evidence whatsoever. I had always been considered to be a strong clinician. So uh, I looked after sick patients. Um, I taught. I won, I'd won. i won the teaching award for cardiology. I was chief resident of cardiology in my training. The idea that I was anything less than a good doctor would horrify me. But to mm. suggest that I was an absolutely terrible doctor, I mean, I just... It just undid me. And during this period of time, you were continuing to work at the hospital, go on rounds. What was it like trying to carry on your your clinical duties uh, under a cloud like that? I would have to put on emotional armor to leave my office, Mm. to go up and do rounds in clinic and take care of patients. I was very aware that if I ever made one mistake that would be the end of me. How much were your colleagues aware of uh, the, the trouble that had been visited upon you? They were fully aware. The story broke in the press within a, f- a few short months. It was all extremely public. There were colleagues that I thought of as friends that um, where the friendship just died. They just walked away. And there were colleagues who... I wasn't particularly close to who really stepped up and became very good friends. In the division of cardiology, I would say that there was a lot of fear and that fear bred silence. Why do you think they were afraid? Because the same thing could happen to them. Do you think you were being bullied? If you're saying, do, did I think power was being abused? Yes. And 
what it felt like was that basically there was a massive corporation, which was the hospital, that was prepared to use millions and millions of dollars to crush me. You had to hire a lawyer to represent you? More than one. Why is that? Well, once my hospital privileges were at risk, I needed a lawyer to represent me in the internal processes. And um, those processes should have wound up in about four weeks, but the hospital chose to drag that out for four years, which resulted in my research program shutting down. All that time, the hospital had really, I think at one point, seven lawyers on its payroll. And they paid, so they paid these lawyers to protect the instigators and to prosecute me. It was unbelievable. And then at the end of it, the hospital board acknowledged they had no basis to vary my privileges. But instead of apologizing, they chose to publicly claim I was a doctor of bad character. And that was just to protect their public image. And so after four years, they just destroyed my reputation in the most public way. And I had to file a lawsuit to try and clear my name. Give me a sense of how much you paid in legal fees. $1.3 million. (gasps) Wow. So you filed a lawsuit after the hospital restored your privileges. What was the basis of the suit? Um, that the hospital improperly interfered in my ability to do my job, that they shouldn't have varied my privileges. And after they restored my privileges, they should not have trashed my reputation in the media. And this went on for, what, 10 years? That's right. Until 2016, when you were given the largest award for loss of reputation. How did you feel about that? Obviously, I was delighted to win. I'm eternally grateful to the jury. They gave me back my life. The experience of enduring what those lawyers did and what those witnesses said was extremely difficult, and it took me a while mentally to, for my head to stop spinning and for me to really understand the power of that verdict. The hospital wasn't finished. Uh, the, I gather the hospital appealed, and and the uh, award that you were that you were given was reduced to eight hundred thousand dollars. How did you feel about that? I was very glad for some things that were said in the appeal decision. So the judges said, dismissed every single allegation that the hospital ever made. They said it basically that it was all made up. The unusually sweeping statement was very powerful for me because it means that I can really properly tell my story. But um, the reduction in the damages, I'll be honest, I was very disappointed by that. Um, It basically meant that my legal bills were covered. So I was never compensated for anything that happened. Were there any repercussions for the instigators of the complaints against you? None. I certainly have been very shocked that the perpetrators have gone on to illustrious careers elsewhere. You filed a complaint with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Nova Scotia against your division head. What came from that complaint? The college dismissed my complaint and 
I got a perfunctory letter after a perfunctory investigation saying that his actions did not constitute un- conduct on becoming a doctor. And I was left thinking to take a wrecking ball to damage the life of another human being with stories that have no basis is conduct on becoming any citizen of Nova Scotia or Canada. And I don't understand why it wouldn't be conduct on becoming a physician. There must have been times when you felt like giving up. Yes. In fact, um, there was a point where I called up my lawyer and said that I was through. I was leaving the practice of medicine because nothing was worth this. He said, I'll tell you when it's over. When your situation's hopeless, I promise I'll tell you that. But trust me, you can still win this. There were many points in this long journey when the hospital could have changed course and stopped the action against you. So why do you think nobody stopped the process given the results and the millions of dollars that were being spent in legal bills? That's one of the huge questions here. Really, they should be made to answer for that for themselves. These people were all healthcare professionals. They had a duty to act in what's called good faith, and they chose not to. So those people have to be held accountable. What kind of message do you think your case sent to healthcare institutions regarding how they treat people? I'm not sure that my case has sent any message at all to healthcare institutions in Canada. The health authority has yet to acknowledge any wrongdoing whatsoever, even after the Court of Appeal decision. Nobody's been held accountable. The amount of money that they were made to pay is not enough to make a large health authority feel pain. That tells you that they just haven't begun to address the issues. And so if the Nova Scotia Health Authority hasn't begun to address the issues, I would doubt that other health authorities have been particularly perturbed. I may be wrong. What are the hurdles that you think are specific to the culture of medicine uh, when it comes to change? Secrecy and the culture that says that you can't call out senior physicians or there'll be repercussions to you. On the other hand, when people see that justice isn't being done through traditional structures that are charged to provide justice, there will come a point where there's an uprising and it'll be dealt with some other way. So if hospitals, universities and regulatory bodies do not deal with this behavior among physicians, something else is going to grow up and take its place. So how exactly that will play out, I'm not sure. But I think we might be on the tipping point. Millennial physicians are now coming on staff in hospitals. And these younger doctors, if I could generalize, are more prone to using and reading social media, more inclined to connect with these campaigns that exist outside institutional structures, like Me Too. My feeling is that they have less trust in power and institutions. And I think that that might be what we need as a profession to move forward.
In the 2018 ruling by the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, the justices said they were satisfied that bad faith by the health authority at that time caused significant and lasting damage to Dr. Horn's reputation. We wanted to know what's changed at the health authority since then. Dr. Gail Tomblin Murphy, Vice President of Research and Innovation for the Nova Scotia Health Authority, sent us a statement which said the department is, quote, committed to a safe and harassment-free work environment. She said the authority's 2017 respectful workplace policy, quote, provides teams with direction on how to proceed if they feel that they've been a target of bullying behavior or harassment. There have been many opportunities for training and education provided by the authority's respectful workplace consultant. A safe line is in place and employees are encouraged to call and report any incident that concerns safety in the workplace, end quote. Encouraging bullied doctors to complain only works if the system truly supports them. Otherwise, nothing changes. A 2017 Canadian survey found that 80% of medical students who were bullied didn't report it. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, the surprisingly common yet often quiet and murky problem of doctor bullying by those in positions of power. In the culture of modern medicine, it's very risky to complain about bullying because you're more apt to be labeled a problem physician than to get action. And very few physicians are likely to go to court, as Dr. Gabriel Horn did. Valerie Wise knows what doctors are up against. The health lawyer in Oakville, Ontario, has worked on both sides of disputes involving allegations of doctor bullying. I asked her for her take on the Gabriel Horn case. Most physicians in her position give up at some point along the line. And so it was very interesting to hear from someone who has persevered throughout, been successful in the end, and faced those risks. She mentioned what she had spent in legal fees. But the other issue that's usually um, weighing against continuing is the exposure that you have to the other side's legal expenses if, in fact, you lose at the end of the day. So that could bankrupt any individual who's going up against the system. It's definitely north of a million dollars. So most people are looking at losing their homes. Is this story, her story, and and how it played out an an outlier? Or is it typical? Um, In terms of conflict within hospitals between physicians, administrators, physician leaders, I I can't quantify it, but that is something that definitely happens uh, on a fairly regular basis. I think there are particular aspects of it that are unique to healthcare. Doctors need hospitals. If a surgeon or a pathologist or what have you isn't happy, they can't just move down the street and hang out a shingle. (laughs) Um, So sometimes it's an issue of allocation of resources, and they perceive that those resources are being allocated unfairly. Sometimes it's, as in her case, someone was trying to interfere with or involve themselves in a new project that she saw as hers. Sometimes that could be an issue of generation, that could be an issue of, of training. Um, sometimes when you have a new program starting or a young doctor coming in with new ideas, it can be perceived as threatening by some of the other doctors who have been there doing things the way they want them done for a long period of time and now change is being introduced. Um, and physician leaders, people in power, have a lot of um, authority and control over those decisions, and that translates into money. Income. Absolutely. In my experience, anyways, often these issues are revolving around money and or whether you call it ego or jealousy or pride. Um, I think 
physicians, quite rightly, are, are feel very proud of their accomplishments and they are professionals. When, when that is threatened in some capacity or they are made to feel that someone else may be surging ahead, that can give rise to some jealousy. They might try to create problems for that person so that the physician leadership administration perceives that this individual, again, the person in this situation of Dr. Horn, is a problem and therefore make things a little bit more difficult for him or her. So perhaps he or she will leave. Wow. Concerns will typically be framed in relation to patient safety. I mean, you can't say, I don't like this person. That's not going to get you very far. So typically, they will look for issues that could be perceived as giving uh, rise to risk to patient safety. And are these real issues, or do you think they're manufactured? That can depend. Sometimes they are. I mean, as I say, I've been hospital counsel. I've seen both sides. So sometimes they very much are. Sometimes the person who is in the position of Dr. Horn really is a problem. But they're not. But but some of these authority figures who might be threatened are not above raising issues of safety when there are no safety issues. I have seen situations that I believe would fit that description. There's nothing more career-destroying than having your privileges suspended or, or, or varied as Dr. Horns were. It has enormous impact on a physician because I think, as she mentioned, first of all, the regulator is usually informed. Um, so now there can be a secondary investigation going on by the college. Going forward, if she were to have tried to move to another hospital, the privileges application is usually very probing and asks all kinds of questions. And they will insist on speaking to your former chief of staff or the former chief of your department. So that history will follow you. And sometimes doctors are able to explain it that, listen, it was an, an interpersonal conflict. I'm just moving on. But it's an enormous uphill battle. You tell them about the risks of going to court. What did they tell you about their biggest fear about pursuing an action against a colleague or an employer? Usually the money. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, because by the time they're looking at civil litigation, there's been already a lot of damage to their reputation. The fact that litigation is public is often less of the concern because by that point, the damage to their reputation has, has often been done. Gabriel Horn was awarded in the end 800000 because the jury believed that the administrators in her case acted in bad faith. How challenging is it to make a case of bad faith? Extremely. And that is why these cases are so risky and don't go forward. There is typically a defense built into the statute that as long as the physician leader or administrator is acting in quote-unquote good faith, you can't sue them. There's no cause of action against them. You need to be able to show to prove they actually had a subjective intent. There was malice. No one is going to take the stand and testify that, yes, I didn't like Gabriel Horn, and so this is why I did things. So that's tremendously difficult to prove. Would you say that Gabriel Horn was lucky? Was she fortunate? Yes, I, I would say that. And she was tenacious and she was brave, very brave. Over the 14 years that Gabriel Horn was fighting the hospital, there were multiple opportunities to settle the matter, uh, and yet the institution pursued it to the end, even appealing the original award. These are public institutions. At some point, they're spending taxpayer dollars. Is the public getting its money's worth in a 14-year battle like this? 
Yeah, and that's that's really hard to say generally, but I, I do think it's a concern when you have hospitals, and it's a concern for the hospitals. You know, they have limited budgets, and now they would say if they have a tr- problematic physician who they're trying to deal with, now they are burdened with this these legal fees in order to deal with that physician. Um, and Dr. Horn's, from her perspective, I'm sure she would say, no, this was obviously a waste of public resources. Um, it is, it's an issue for sure. And as an outsider looking in, what do you think needs to change in the culture of healthcare to, to manage these situations better? I think we need physician leaders and administrators who have good interpersonal skills, good at conflict resolution, and look at, you know, is this person or is there a dynamic in the department that's already setting itself up as a conflict? You know, be be ready for some disruption if you're bringing in a really talented young doctor with some new ideas. Just monitor the situation and be fair to them. And early intervention, and that's something that has certainly been emphasized by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, has been encouraging hospitals when a problem is developing to get in early, hear both sides of the story, and really try to manage the conflict early on. And what's the big lesson we can take away from the Gabriel Horn case? Personally, I think the lesson is that um, if you can be brave, sometimes at the end of it, you will be vindicated, but it's a long haul. As a lawyer who works on both sides of these disputes, Valerie Wise chose her words carefully. Still, I was astonished to hear her say that some bullying doctors are motivated by threats to their income and ego, and that some will even make false accusations about patient safety. And she said, it takes a brave person to stand up to that. It will take a lot more bravery to actually change the culture. A 2018 editorial on bullying in the Canadian Medical Association Journal said, quote, We need to stop excusing unprofessional behavior toward colleagues just because physicians are accomplished in clinical care or academia. End quote. I agree. Being a smart physician should not be a license to be a bully. And that's our show. Email us with your thoughts at whitecoat at cbc.ca or post to our blog at cbc.ca slash whitecoat. I'm on Twitter at NightShiftMD and the show is at CBC Whitecoat. We're also on Facebook. You can also listen to our show using the CBC Radio app or the Radio Player Canada app. Our podcast is available at subscriptions.cbc.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. And for the latest in health news and analysis... Subscribe to Second Opinion at subscriptions.cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Sujata Berry with help from senior producer Donna Dingwall, Jeff Goods, and digital producers Ruby Buiza and Jonathan Orr. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.